Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Welcome. Um, wow, those are a lot of announcements. That was a lot. That was a lot. But we had a lot going on, and it's just exciting. Um, lots of opportunities for you guys to get to know other people who are at the church, especially if you're new. Um, we are finishing up this spontaneous series that we started about two weeks ago. And um, essentially, the, the idea behind this series was to answer this question. Why the church? What is the purpose of the church? I, I really think this is one of the most important questions of our age, um, especially if one of the main reasons why people deconstruct their faith and walk away from following Jesus in general is the church. We need to find out, well, what is the purpose of the church and is it meeting that purpose? So the first week we talked about why the church and our answer was the church exists to equip. So if you come to the church, you're looking for other things aside from equipping, it will not make sense. And if you come to the church and they're doing anything else but equipping, run, <laughs> essentially. Go, go back and listen to that message. I think it was very important. Last week, uh, we answered the question, why the church, with this single word, revival. The church exists to bring about revival through hosting God's presence in a space. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. And tonight, um, we are closing this uh, series out by answering the question this way. Why the church, the confessing church? The church becomes an alternate community worth following when it lives the truth. When it lives the truth. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians a lot tonight, uh, but turn to Ephesians uh, all the way to the right in your Bibles. If you're new to the scriptures, there's a table of contents. You can look up the book of Ephesians uh, in the front and, and find out where that is. And, and this, this book is, we call it a book, but it's really a letter. And it's a letter that's written to a church in Ephesus, um, ancient, modern day Turkey, but um, an ancient city. And uh, there was a church there that existed in this incredibly culturally contentious and difficult time period. So very different than our own time period that we're living in. I doubt there will be anything in here for us to really glean from it, but we'll see. Okay, we'll see. Uh, Ephesians chapter four, and we're gonna start in verse 11. We're going all the way to 25, so buckle up. It says this, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip, this is where we got our first message from, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love. Make note of that. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ Christ. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Who are the Gentiles? They're non-Christians. They're unbelievers. You must no longer live like unbelievers in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Each of you, this is so key, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So so why the church? Why does the church exist? The church exists to make a confession of the truth. Speaking the truth in love, putting off falsehood, and putting on the new man the confessing church. We're to make this confession of truth. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that language, the confessing church, um, I wanna take you back to the 1930s in Germany. At this point in Hitler's meteoric rise, the German national church has split into two different factions. So they essentially had one German national church and they've split into two churches. One church in Germany went along with Hitler to maintain subsidies and benefits, okay? The other church, they rebuked the hatred and killing of Jews and maintained that the church should be allowed to have its own doctrine that was uninfluenced by the state, okay? More on that later. Now, here's my question to you. If you were back there, 1930s Germany, which church would you have belonged to? How do you know? Because today, though the stakes in our world are not as high yet, it seems as though the true confession of the church is being sidetracked by auxiliary cultural issues and our confession has been corrupted. And I think that this is because us in this room, not Christians out there, us, we have been confused by the culture war. We're gonna go there tonight. (laughs) We're gonna go there tonight. See, there is a battle raging in our nation culturally. And uh, it is not primarily a race battle, a battle about race. It is not primarily a gender battle, a battle about gender. Uh, It's not a battle about sexuality. It is a theological battle. All human conflict at root is theological. See, the the problem in our culture isn't just that people don't understand each other. 
It's like, why don't we have unity? We just don't know each other. We don't understand each other. We don't see the other as human. That's part of the problem. The deeper issue is that we have different origin stories altogether. Like, do you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, what is your origin story? Where did you come from? What are you doing here? What is your worth? And how do you know that that is actually true and that you really are worth that? Where did it come from? Your origin story shapes everything. What you believe about your origins changes everything. So why the culture war? Why are we having this culture war? Well, because on one side of the culture war, you have a group of people who have a biblical worldview that says God created you with boundaries because there was purpose and design in your creation. The other, the, the, the culture's worldview or, uh, or the Gentile's worldview says that you create yourself. And that love then is when other people accept and celebrate what you've come up with. Those are opposite worldviews. Like, why don't we have unity? And why can't the church just bring about unity? We have opposite worldviews. We have opposite origin stories. And these different worldviews, they bubble to the surface in these culture clashes that we're watching play out right now. So just a couple. In Newburgh, the school board votes to have no more political symbols within the schools, primarily talking about pride flags or progress flags and Black Lives Matter flags in the school. There are conservative political slash worship rallies that are happening in Portland on the waterfront and Antifa shows up and they beat people up. I'm not gonna comment on either of those issues, but I wanna ask you a few questions as they're in your mind right now. What does it make you wanna do? Like, like we're, not, we're not making any progress with God by like lying to ourselves and to him. What do you want to do? There's literally Psalms where David asked God, I pray that my enemy's children would grow up without parents, okay? So you're not doing any, God any favors by like, by like, well, no, it's not so bad and I, they're really good people in their heart. No, like what does it make you wanna do? You gotta be honest to make any progress. So what does it make you wanna do? I just want you to feel that for a moment. Even when I mentioned it, I could feel it in the room. Something comes up into your throat and you go, what's he gonna say? I like this church. Please don't say what I think you're gonna say. (laughs) Like, Like, what do you want me to say? Have you ever thought about that? Like I know, I stand up in front of all you guys and I know each and every one of you has something that you want me to say. And my job is not to say any of it, it's to, it's to say what he's saying, hopefully. I, 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 I try, but I, have, I also have things that I wanna say. Do you know how many times I'm writing a sermon and I go, yeah, that's something I wanna say, not what you wanna say. I try. As we think about this culture war that we're in that takes up so much of our brain and heart space, for those of us who are just tired and bewildered, like I was just talking with my wife today, I'm just confused 
If you're confused, I wanna remind you of two things. Paul says this back in verse 17. I actually think this is worth reading again. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles or unbelievers do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. When someone is hard in their hearts towards God, it darkens their understanding and they give themselves to sexual immorality and greed. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> like, like, guys, don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. We're so shocked as believers. This was a Christian nation. Okay, it, yeah, yes, but you realize that it's full of unbelievers. And many people who, who say they're even Christians are unbelievers. Don't be surprised when the world is the world. And then don't be surprised when you're hated for your stance of truth. Like we get so offended, like they hate us. I, this is me, like I'm, this message is preached to me. Like I, I get so offended, I'm like, they, but they hate me. It's like since when was that a reason to not love them as a believer? Jesus said you're gonna be hated. It's part of counting the cost, okay? He said you're gonna get hated. So here's what I want to say tonight. The most subversive thing the church can do, and really the reason for the church, is to have hills that we die on. It's incredibly subversive. We just need to make sure that they're the right hills. <laughs> and that's the key. <clears throat> In the face of the culture war, what exactly are we confessing? What are our hills that we're going to die on? And, and tonight, I, I urge you, take notes. I don't see many of you guys with like notes out this is one to take notes on. Get your phone out, whatever you need to do. Four confessions of the church tonight. Four confessions that we make as the church in the midst of a culture war. And I believe that each of these are a radical and unapologetic witness to a decaying world. So, so the first one is this. The first confession that the church exists to make is Christ crucified. It's the cross. The church exists to confess that the cross is the solution to every problem. Yes. You're like, yeah, that sounds nice. No, no, really think about it. Yes. Think about the problems. We, the church exists to confess that the cross is the solution to every problem. The church confesses that there is no progress through our programs, through our systems, or our human ideas the cross and death to self is the only way forward. It's the only way. Uh, remember what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he comes to Corinth, he says this, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's like, I don't understand your culture. I don't know what kind of tensions you guys are having. I'm not sure what the arguments have been. So when I came, I determined the one thing that I need to do is I need to make sure that I only know Christ and him crucified. He's the answer to every culture issue you are facing. And if you read the book of Corinthians, there were a lot of cultural issues that they were facing. What he is saying is that the real problem for all humanity isn't the manifestations of the culture war around us, but it's personal sin. That's the real problem, is personal sin. There is a cosmic war taking place. Our wrestle isn't against flesh and blood. And Jesus starts his ministry this way. 
Jesus, when he comes on the scene in Mark, he says this, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. In other words, what he's saying is he's, he, he's saying the problem is not, he doesn't show up and he, he, he doesn't do this. He doesn't show up and say, the Roman government's the problem. If we can take care of them, you'll see the kingdom. He, he doesn't say the tax collector's oppression, their racial-based tax structures are the problem. And if we can take care of those, then the kingdom will come. He says, you repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. What he's saying is that the kingdom advances and spreads not at your ability to organize and tear down systems of oppression or expose other people's sin and cancel. It spreads at your ability to repent, to change your mind and to say, I've been wrong and I've been so self-righteous and you're actually right. And I'm, I don't want my project, I want yours. The kingdom advances at the pace of personal repentance. See, our culture war, here, here's the deception. Our culture war wants to say that the problem is flags and masks. <sighs> no, it's about human sin and the need for forgiveness. And that's what we confess as the church. When the church gets sidetracked, we lose our witness. We lose our confession. So we confess the solution is only the cross, period. Jesus went to die for you because you, your sin deserved death. Do you ever sit with that? Like we're a charismatic church, I know. So we're all like, we're on the other side of the cross and we live in the other side of the cross. It is good to remember that the importance of the cross is determined by our need for it. We needed it. We would be in hell without the cross. We needed it. You, you didn't just deserve to be canceled, you deserve to die. <laughs> You're like, this cancellation thing's gone too far. It's like, well, you deserve to die. You deserve to die. So please, let's not water down the gospel to fight a dumb culture war. Like the gospel is so powerful. It's like a hill that we're gonna die on here at Saints Hill. It's one of the reasons why we planted is I was so tired of getting fed the complexity of having to try to deal with all of the culture's issues from biblical perspectives. I'm done. It's the cross. It's the cross. And, and I wanna say this. When we fight with the world's tools and the world's definitions for getting the cross, we lose even if we win the argument. And then we walk around with a defeated attitude. So much of the church needs to wake up. It's time to walk in victory because all things are put under his feet. And, and, and get this. Well, actually, I just wanna show you this. I'm just gonna read this to you. I don't have this in my notes, so I'm just gonna go there. This is in Ephesians chapter one, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In other words, the church is his body and all things are where? Under his feet. So either we walk in the victory of the cross or we get entangled in the confusion of the culture war and we lose our witness. Walking around defeated. No, we confess Christ and him crucified. The cross reminds us that we are never on the defense because we have the ultimate solution. We're never on the defense because we have the ultimate solution. Took care of sin and death. It's incredible. Now, the second thing that we confess then is this, 
a moving from form to relationship. The second confession of the church, if the church exists to confess the truth, then it is this truth, that we are moving from form to relationship. Simply put, Jesus was concerned more with the inside of a person than the outside of a person. You think about his ministry, the things he talked about, whitewashed tombs needing to be clean on the inside or dirty cups on the inside getting cleaned and washed, rich young rulers walking in radical surrender, high priests getting born again. This should be our focus as well, inside out change. There is no form, no structure that can truly address the issues of the heart. Only God can do that. And so here's our message. This is Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the church, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You're an ambassador. Think about that. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When we stray from this message and from this mission, we err. The ministry, we're not given the ministry of behavior modification. We're not given the ministry of political control. We are given the ministry of reconciling a lost world to their father. The, the temptation that I see um, in the church, and, and look, guys, this is like me preaching to myself. You're like, how does this guy know all this stuff? Because it's the problem that's in me. We wonder, like, so often, like, our message on Sunday is grace and love and acceptance and the prophetic. But then to anyone who offends us in the culture, it's, you need to change that behavior. And it's like, you wonder why people aren't interested in the church, because we're not showing them what's really on offer. We're so caught up in offense that we're not able to move in love. And so we save all the love and all the joy and all the peace and grace for this time. And it doesn't make it out of the walls because the instant we walk out of these four walls, we get on Twitter and we get offended. It's like, no, no, like, the most radical part about Jesus is that he dealt with the heart instead of the behavior. Look, he's gonna get to the behavior through the heart. But every other religion, every other system attempts to change people from the outside in. He goes inside out. And and this has to influence our message. It has to. Like how incongruent is it for people who have been saved from the inside out to try to shape other people from the outside in? And I find that's like my approach to politics most of the time is God, you saved me from the inside out. You're not looking at my sin any longer. It's been done away with. But I really don't like what those people are doing. And I really think they should change. Look, here's the deal. We express the freedom that we've been given by our lack of control of others. If, if, when we want to control others and we want to control their sin, it simply reveals that we have not experienced the fullness of the gospel. Because if we had, we would want to afford the same freedom, the same opportunity to those around us. And we'd believe that Jesus' blood is big enough to save even those people at all times. So as we're looking at the culture war, here's how we discern this in our own hearts. Like, am I trying to change people? Or do I really care about people? 
Well, because that, that, it's tough. It's, it's kind of tough. Am I trying to control or am I real, do I have a legitimate concern here? Here's how we discern it. We need to remind ourselves and know there are two motivations in every human heart that really motivate almost all human behavior. Those two motivations are fear or love. They're the two motivations. Almost anything that you're motivated to do, you can ask yourself, you can get, if you keep asking yourself why, you will eventually get to fear or love. Um, we do certain things because we're in love and we do other things because we're in fear. The other day, I'm, I'm listening to a podcast that probably a lot of you people are listening to right now. I won't mention the name, but um, I'm listening to this podcast and on it, they're talking to, to this person who has deconstructed their faith and they've walked away from Jesus altogether after being a pastor, after publishing Christian books and leading a, a, a mega church. And this person said something so insightful, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. They said, I walked away from the faith because fear and constriction represented the tradition of faith that I had grown up in. Fear and constriction. Like, think about fear and constriction in the church. How do we reconcile that being a culture in the church with the words of Jesus? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Those don't work together. Or, or who the son sets free is free indeed. And yet he says fear and constriction represented the tradition that I'd grown up in. Look, when you come to Jesus, let me just be clear. When you come to Jesus, he's gonna own you. He will own you. You make him Lord and he will tell you who to break up with. He will tell you who to marry. He will tell you where to work. He will tell you whether you can watch Netflix tonight. He will tell you all kinds of stuff. And part of him being Lord is submitting under that. What is he doing? He's constricting you so that you can get free from the idols that you once had so that you can live in righteousness and in complete freedom. That's his goal for you. But humans are not God. And churches are not God. Humans constantly, we always do this. We place constriction and rules on others so that we can protect our systems. Not for their freedom, but for the, for the preservation of our comfort, safety, and system. So if when looking at the culture, like looking out at the culture, and you simply wish people would just conform to your vision of the world or to your system, you will have a hard time loving them because you're afraid of them. You're afraid of them. What will they do to the culture if they're in power? What will happen to my children if they're leading? But if you are really in love, you will be able to not control or constrict and you will leave that up to the king who really knows them. If you're really in love, this is challenging, guys. I have a lot of fear in my heart about raising my child in this culture. I wanna isolate, head for the hills. It's not what we're called to do. Thirdly, uh, we confess this. We are more for something than against something. We're more for something than against something. When you, what, what, when you love, whatever you love, you will reveal what you hate. And that's okay, there are things worth hating. Like, did he say hate in church? Yeah, there are things worth hating. The deeds of the enemy are worth hating. Certain things that people do are worth hating. But we reveal what we hate by what we love. And it's so rare that we reveal what we love by what we hate. Like, if, you're, if you lead with what you hate, you, people will probably not be able to tell what you love. But if you lead with what you love, people will be able to tell what you hate. 
we are more for something than against something because we're not on defense. <laughs> like this is what I'm trying to, like I'm trying to like wake us up as a church. Like we're not on defense and we, we can't be offended by a world that's deceived. They're deceived. Beca- but because God is the holder of all definitions, we get to be more for something than against. You didn't get it, okay. Because God is the holder of all definitions, we get to be more for something than against. Here's what I mean. One of the biggest disservices the church can do to a culture is allow the culture to define Bible words and Bible concepts. No, those are our words. Our concepts, they're defined in here, okay? So, like, think about this. If, if our culture redefines the word unity, which is a Bible word, to mean agree with all my premises, then anyone who doesn't agree is anti-unity. The redefinition created a power dynamic in which the Christians apparently are wrong. Or, if the world redefines love to mean approval, then anyone who doesn't approve is what? They're hateful. You didn't approve, so you are a hater. But these are deceived definitions. We just need to like write that down, deceived definitions. You should have it like a little radar, like is that a deceived definition? That sounds like a deceived definition. They're not the true definitions. So, so let me ask you this, what is love? This is a big one. What is love? Love is defined by sacrifice for the person who is wrong. It's not approval, it's sacrifice for the person who is wrong. How do I know? Because that's what Jesus did and he is love. Jesus sacrificed for you when you were wrong. While we were still sinners, Christ showed his love by dying for us even then. And so this is the definition of Jesus and it's the definition we must use. Do not be deceived. Our sacrifice in order to love people who are wrong, according to Paul here, is this. Verse 25, look back down at your Bibles. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. See, there's this, there is this, there's a false dichotomy culturally that says you cannot be truthful and loving at the same time. And Paul's like, hmm, speaking the truth in love, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. You wanna really love? You gotta put off, you gotta stop lying. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. It isn't easy to do that. So practically, like, how do you handle this dynamic? How do you handle this in our culture? Just a a few things. I I just want to remind you. So next slide. How to handle a post-Christian world. Know this. People are going to speak ill of you even when you use Bible definitions. You're like, no, no, no. I know I'm right. Like, that's how love is defined. People are still going to speak ill of you, okay? Make sure that it's for the right reasons. Make sure that you ask yourself why. Do I ask? Do people, are they speaking ill of me or of my tribe because of the truth or because of the way that we're communicating the truth? Okay? Um, Number three, conduct yourselves in the morality of Christ. Don't just talk truth. You have to live it. Like this this section in my Bibles in the NIV is titled Instructions for Christian Living. It's life, okay? Uh, Number four, put on display an alternative community of radical surrender. So our job as the church is to actually, we're like, hey, world, this is the truth, but let us show you how, just how true this is by our surrender unto God. 
in it. By us actually not living like the unbelievers do, by putting to death our old way of life and coming alive to a whole new way of life. And then here's the, other, the fifth thing to do, shake the dust off. You're like, what? There's this uh, ancient Jewish tradition that if you go to a town and you preach the gospel and they don't accept you, you shake the dust off your feet and pronounce God's judgment on that town and you go to the next town. Jesus' words, not mine. You're like, he said pronounce judgment. Yeah, Jesus told his disciples to do that. So, and know this, the culture liking you is not the metric for whether you were right or wrong. There's so many Christians I talk to, especially my age, millennials, and they think that the culture should love us. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? The Bible said that we were gonna be hated. Just make sure you're being hated for the right thing, okay? Lastly, lastly, number four, you're like, when's this guy gonna be done? Okay, number four. The last thing that we confess is power under. Power under. There are two kinds of power that are um, shown in the gospels. Power over and power under. One form of power dictates and determines without the other's choice in the matter. So the image that I have in my mind of this is the Pharisees attempting to stone Jesus. Do you remember that moment? They, they, get, they pick up stones to stone him. He slips, I don't know how he does it, but he sneaks through the crowd and he, he gets away from them. Uh, what is that? That's you will submit at threat of being killed, power over. We'll, we, will, we will dominate you in order to get your obedience and allegiance. Power over. Now, power under is very different. What image comes to my mind about power under? And the perfect image is of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's power under. See, I thought about this. I thought, I've never even asked this question. Was Jesus more morally correct than his disciples? Not a trick question. Yes, he was. Whoa, read the gospels. Um, was Jesus more morally correct than his disciples? Yes. Could Jesus see the lies that they were believing? Yes. And what is his response to them? Service. Service. In that service, that power under, he gained the power not to dominate, but to influence. He still taught, he preached, he confronted incorrect ways of thinking or believing, but his ultimate message was service. Why? How can he do that? Isn't he worried about their moral failings, about the waywardness of the culture, about all of the, you know, read down through church history over the next 2,000 years that follow, all the ins and outs and failures of the people of God. Wasn't he worried about that? And he was just washing feet you reveal your source by your ability to serve. You show your power, not by might, but by humility. If you can't serve your enemy, then you're not, correct, you're not connected to the right source. This is so convicting, guys, isn't it? <laughs> because I think about, I actually think, like, one of the things I've been learning is like, don't beat around the bush. Do you have enemies? Yes, I actually have enemies. I actually have people that I hate. And I don't, I don't go like, but I'm a pastor. No, I'm a, I'm a disciple, I'm a son. And so I just go to my father and I go, Father, I hate that person. <laughs> and I don't wanna serve them. It's the last thing that I wanna do. I actually wanna show them what's what. Would you fill me up with the love that I know you have so that I can take a knee before them and even serve them. 
It's so hard to do. But this is what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We go low. We go power under. It's like, what is the difference between a church that engages in culture war and a church that becomes an alternate community or a confessing church? The difference is the difference between power under and power over. That's the difference. In the culture war, the goal is winning. We're gonna win. We're gonna take back that city council. We're gonna take back that school board. We're gonna take back the the governing heights. Now, some Christians are called to it, okay? So let's one-on-one, you and me, me, and let's talk about what that looks like. But I'm saying like generally for what's the witness of our church, the goal is not winning, the goal is reconciliation. So I think it's a good time for us to maybe ask the question like, do we wanna win? (laughs) Like, do you wanna win? Do you want to win the argument or do you want to win cultural approval? Or is the goal of your life, the aim of your life, to reconcile people back to relationship with God? One of those is the church's business and the the other isn't. Now, those are our four confessions as a church in the midst of this culturally uh, strenuous time. Throughout this series, one of the things that I've been trying to do is I've been trying to place our church into the historical context of Christians um, down through the ages and the church down through the ages. And so tonight, the inspiration for this message was the bonfire of the vanities and the confessing church of Germany. Bonfire of the vanities and the confessing church of Germany. Um, Aside from being an awesome book that I'm in the middle of bonfire of the vanities, what was that? Uh, in the 15th century Italy, there was a Dominican friar who was worried about the decadence of the Renaissance. He's looking around at all these painters, all these famous, famous painters that we know about today who are creating all this beauty, and he's going, it's dangerous, it's leading people away from God. The nudity in the paintings, the, uh, the gold and ornate you know, um, you know, moldings of these, these rich Italians' homes, uh, the luxurious lifestyles. And so he began this thing called the Bonfire of the Vanities. And so I think we have like a, a painting of it. So people would bring their, you know, the, obviously they're bringing books at this point because books are so valuable. They're bringing these works of art and they're destroying them. They're getting rid of them. And essentially the idea was this, burn the culture to change the culture. Burn the culture in order to change it. But aside from this being an incredible name of an event, Bonfire of the Vanities, um, this didn't work. Um, Fixing the outside rarely produces real lasting change in the heart. Plus this Dominican friar was himself burned. There's him being burned at the stake. You know, the people of Florence are like, we'll show you a bonfire with the vanities. Get over here. (laughs) Just brutal, just brutal. Some of you are like, I want to burn the culture. And I just want to remind you of the the 15th century Florence. And just, you know, that spirit is still alive today. So just be careful. Um, (laughs) But there's another way than the bonfire of the vanities. And it's the confessing church of Germany. Like I mentioned earlier, on November 13th in 1933, there was a rally of German Christians held in a Berlin gymnasium where before a packed hall, banners proclaimed the unity of the National Socialism uh, Party, the Nazi Party, and Christianity. Um, There were a number of speakers who preached a, a number of things, such as the removal of all pastors who were unsympathetic to National Socialism, the Nazi Party. 
Um, they wanted to remove the Old Testament from the Bible. It's just so darn Jewish. Uh, the adoption of a more heroic and positive interpretation of Christ. So they're like, this guy's kind of a wimp. He, he gets killed and all of that. So we need to get a more of a, you know, an Ubermensch type of a deal of this, you know, interpretation of Jesus. You're like, Ubermensch? Yes, that was their, that was their philosophy. Now, Here's what one of uh, the speakers said at this event. He said this, positive Christianity is national socialism and national socialism is the doing of God's will. The confessing church has tried to tell me that Christianity consists in faith in Christ as the son of God. That makes me laugh. Christianity is not dependent upon the apostles' creed, but is represented by the party. The German people are now called by the Fuhrer to a real Christianity. The Fuhrer is the herald of a new revelation. Um, we are in a cultural moment where unbelievers are redefining what is good theology and what isn't. Um, what is our response? There was a group of young Christians in the midst of all of this led by Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, re who resisted the redefining um, and the, one of the ways they resisted the redefining was through this place called Finkenwald. In 1935, Bonhoeffer accepted an invitation from the Confessing Church to direct an underground seminary. They're like, seminary sounds so stuffy, but an underground seminary? <laughs> I, could, I could get down with that. The, uh, the seminary at Finkenwald became a social experiment in intentional Christian community modeled on the Sermon of the Mount. It was a new sort of monasticism. Uh, and if you want to read about it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book called Life Together and it chronicles Finkenwald. Um, resisting the tide of the culture redefining Christianity um, through fidelity to Jesus. That's what they were doing. More for something than against. They began to teach and to learn and to open the scriptures together and to do life together, receiving communion together, participating in, the, in, in reciting the creeds, the ancient creeds of old that have been the rudder of the church down through history. And they began to resist, not in a political way, but in a theological way. It lasted for a moment. The Gestapo uh, eventually found out about the seminary and closed it. In 1937, they arrested more than two dozen of its students. Bonhoeffer was arrested and executed in 1945. Was this a success or a failure? Uh, to earth and to power over, it was a failure. Um, but to eternity, this was such a success. It was resistance through a theological and practical example of faithfulness to the truth. Through, I would dare to say, creedal fidelity. Faithfulness to the creeds. Look, I just thought about this this last week, and at first I got so bummed, but eventually my mood turned around. Newburgh is uniquely primed for a culture battle. It's uniquely primed. Um, we have a town that has been a literally a Christian town founded by Quakers going all the way back to the late 1800s. Um, it's such a strong, has such a strong Christian, uh, dare I say, conservative bent that a university has, was started and flourished here that is now welcoming in its largest class ever. 
on top of that, you have uh, many people who are seeing the, how crazy it is to live in Portland or to live in the city, and they're moving out here, and they have a lot of progressive and liberal ideas about the way that a city should work and function that are not the way that Newburgh traditionally has worked or functioned for the past, you know, 100 years, okay? So it is a unique, a very unique place, and I want you to be aware of this for a culture war to take place. I don't want you to be caught off guard in the next few years because we're going to see a lot of uh, culture battles and skirmishes taking place. But I want us as a church to have a rudder of resistance to the tide uh, of either conservative politics or liberal politics. And, and down through history, that rudder for the church has been the creeds. What has the church believed? There's a lot of interpretation about a lot of other things, but what is the core of what we believe? Let's major on the majors and minor on the minors. The creeds have been a standard of faith that Christians have believed for centuries. So as our first act, as a confessing church in the midst of a culture war, I want us to all stand together and I want us to declare the Apostles' Creed together. So let's stand together. And, uh, and here's what I want us to do. As a, all of us have our opinions. All of us have our own desires for the way that we want the world to work. But if we can repent for a moment by declaring the Apostles' Creed together, I think that we're gonna be uh, set up as a church for the next few years. So uh, put your hand over your heart. Let's declare this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you guys. God, I ask that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, give us uh, the ability to identify where we've been deceived. God, there's some of us, this is me, <laughs> who have um, so aligned with a political persuasion that our first inclination to chaos and culture are political solutions and not the cross. And so, God, we repent collectively as the church and we say, we want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. We want to be one issue believers. We want to be believers who have one issue on our minds and it's you crucified, resurrected for the sake of of reconciliation. So right now, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come and to speak to us wherever we're at. And, um, and I know that there's maybe even people that are frustrated I didn't say more about something or said too much about one thing. God, would you just remind them that I'm not God and you are <laughs> and, that, and that they need to hear from you. So uh, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to just speak to us right now. So just take a moment, guys. And I want you to just listen. And I want you to just take note of what God's saying to you. Maybe there's an issue that's really burning in your mind. It's really on your heart. Something that's had your attention, you've been exasperated about. And I just want you to bring that before the Lord.
Let's go ahead and do that right now. Maybe there's something that's on your mind or, or there's just an issue in your life that you need prayer for and you need somebody to come alongside you to petition heaven for some level of breakthrough or some level of clarity around. Um, and we're gonna invite our prayer team, wherever the prayer team's at, to come on down to the front. There's gonna be a line of people down here who would love to pray with you. They'd love to hear what's going on. They'd love to listen on your behalf and ask God what he thinks about whatever's been going on in your life and to come alongside you, to pray with you, to petition, to intercede with you. And so if there was anything at all from this message that you're like, man, I gotta get prayer. I gotta get uh, squared away. Come on down to the front, get prayer. I also don't wanna miss this opportunity. If you are, are not born again and you're not a believer, um, do you see what's on offer? Do you see what's on offer? you can get out of the cultural mess getting tossed back and forth like an infant in waves and you can set your feet upon something that is rock solid upon the truth himself. And so if you, if you want to meet Jesus, come down to the front and he's gonna come into your life. He's gonna start opening up the scriptures. You're gonna see things in here you never dreamed you'd see. You're gonna start learning things about your life you never dreamed you could learn and about who he made you to be. It's gonna be incredible and you're gonna see him as a holy and awesome God who's worth following and giving everything to. So if that's you, come on down to the front. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.